James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, uh, invite you, if you are able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. James writes, Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot have it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Choose Your Friends Carefully. Uh, my apologies to our online folks. The feed dropped. I think it's back now, so we're, we're glad that you're back with us. On Thursday, I was uh, driving back from lunch, and a lunch meeting, and I was uh, driving to the ministry center the church's ministry center, I was on the Eisenhower uh, at that one spot where you just creep along forever before you can merge onto the Dan Ryan. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of, uh, of the expressway. And directly in front of me was a large red uh, uh, Cadillac SUV. And then on the shoulder uh, to my right was a smaller red Kia SUV who was trying to merge in uh, to, to our lane. And each time the Kia tried to merge in, the Cadillac would speed up right onto the bumper of the car in front of them so that the Kia couldn't get in. And this happened for quite a while as we crept along. The Kia would not give up, kept trying to get in. And the Cadillac continued to, to cut the, the smaller SUV off. And I'm watching the whole time. I'm like, who's going to win? <laughs> and eventually, the Kia sped up a few car lengths and found someone else who would let them into our lane. So my question for you is, who won that expressway battle? Was it the Cadillac for successfully fending off the, the pesky Kia? Or was it the Kia for actually merging in a few car lengths ahead of the stubborn Cadillac? Who won? It's a trick question because the answer is neither of them won. Neither of them won. They both lost. Because I promise you they were both feeling agitated by that interaction. I, I promise you that, that neither of them got to their destination any quicker. 
Did their lives get any better because of that interaction? Did their petty expressway exchange bring any more peace or hope or love or joy into their lives? Or did they just raise their blood pressure a few points? In his letter to the early church, Paul, who, as we've been saying, was probably the brother of Jesus, or excuse me, James, who's probably the brother of Jesus, asks this question. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? Now, James was not thinking about the road rage that you and I are accustomed to, but my experience on the expressway does at least hint at the dissension and disorder that, according to these verses, results from friendship with the world. Now, when James writes about the world, he's thinking about the way that sin and evil have corrupted God's good and beloved creation. James encouraged his Christian community to move in a very different direction, friendship with God. A a move, a decision which would lead to very different results than the conflicts and dissensions that the church was experiencing. One choice, two very different directions, resulting in very different outcomes. In these verses, James taught that each person must decide between friendship with God or friendship with the world. James shows that we can make friends with the world, or we can make friends with God, but we cannot make friends with both. Which sounds uh, simple enough, but honestly, it's actually pretty tough. Because we live in this world. We work and we play and we love in this world. And look, the, the, the conflicts and the disputes and the expressway shenanigans aren't always apparent to us. Sometimes friendship with the world seems like the most normal and harmless thing that we can do. Until it doesn't. Because some of us this morning can testify that what the world gives with one hand, it more than takes away with the other. We have experienced, some of us at least, the shadow side of our culture's glittering promises of fame and fortune. We have tasted the greed and violence which props up our society's displays of exceptionalism and power. At least a few of us this morning know exactly what he means when James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And yet, despite having tasted of its bitter fruit, the fact remains we live in a world skilled at wooing our affections and our allegiances. Honestly, it can feel easier to choose friendship with this sinful and groaning world than with a holy and generous God. So I want to begin, as we wade into this section, to just remind us of some good news. This is what I hope you'll bring with you today. We can choose friendship with God by the grace of God. We can choose friendship with God by the grace of God. And that's good news, right? This relation 
relationship that should be impossible. Friendship with the creator of galaxies. The one from whom every person who has ever lived takes their essence and their purpose. The the father of all, as the apostle Paul writes, who is above all and through all and in all. This impossible friendship with the one God is possible by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the the time uh, that I will take, I want to show why friendship with God is far better than the alternative. And then we'll end uh, with James's very practical instructions about how we can choose the gift of friendship with God. So let's start with this first. Why is friendship with God better than friendship with the world? James talks about conflicts and disputes twice in our, our passage here. And these were serious. James says, so you commit murder? <laughs> this is a next level church conflict. At least I hope. <laughs> Perhaps in this church that James was writing, there were zealots, Jewish uh, people who, who were willing to violently overthrow the Roman Empire. Maybe they were ready for battle. It calls to mind some of the crazy articles I've read recently of, of, of pastors and churches encouraging people to bring their guns to church in order to take back the country for God. And, and, and this stuff sounds dramatic, and, and so it would be easy to say, well, this is not for me. James says that these uh, conflicts and disputes come from cravings that are at war within you. The word for cravings here comes from the same word that we would get uh, something like hedonism. A kind of self-centered focus and attention which, which distracts us from the will of God around us. Uh, on, on Thursday, uh, Wednesday night, I, I, I needed to meet my parents uh, on, I think it was 57th Street, just around the corner from Cottage Grove, about 9 p.m., and, and I told them exactly where, uh, where we were in our car, and, and I saw them turn the corner and drive right to us, and great, they found us, and then they drove... <laughs> they, they, they drove right past us. And uh, my mom called, and she said, I, I don't see you where, you where you said you're going to I said, well, you just drove. So I said, just, just circle the block, and you're going to come up behind us, and you'll see right, right where we are. And so I waited a minute, and sure enough, they circled the block. They came up behind me, right up behind me, and then they moved over around me and then drove a few car lengths in front of me up to the stop sign and, and, then, and then just stopped. And, and my mom called me again, and she said, we don't see you. I said, you almost hit us. You mean, you were right. I said, just don't move. And so I got out of the car, walked up the end of the block, and knocked on the window. I'm like, you know. I said, we were parked right there. Our car was right there. My dad said, your car? I thought you were just standing. We were looking for a, a person. And so they couldn't even see the car. This is the image here of the the, the cravings that that have us so focused on what we want that we we miss what God has for us right next to us. You want something and you do not have it. You covet something and you cannot obtain it. This is a kind of of obsessed fixation. And again, maybe you say, well, that doesn't sound like me. So, So let me ask. 
What are you willing to make sacrifices for? Uh, what, what are you willing to bend the truth a little bit for? What are the circumstances and the situations that you would find yourself in where you are willing to compromise on your convictions? For some of us, it's when there's a little bit more stuff available to us. And for others of us, it's, well, we could do this, I'll get a little bit more status. And for others of us, it would maybe be more about security. I could get a little bit more security in my life. Wanting this world's stuff, status, security at the, at the distraction and the expense of God's actual will for our lives. This, this is friendship with the world. And, and, and James says that these, these cravings, these passions are at war in us. You ask, you don't get because you're going to spend them on this hedonistic pleasure. But does that stop us? No. <laughs> We keep pushing, we keep pressing, we, we, we keep engaging, Paul, uh, James says, in conflicts and disputes. We, we keep trying to, to merge the car of our life into the expressway where we think it needs to go. Have you had the experience where you know that God said no? And you kept pushing, <laughs> you kept pressing. Not now, not that person, not that job, but... I want it. And that fits really well with how I think my life should look right now. Paul writes in Romans 7 and 15, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Christians have talked about this instinct, this, this, this war within us as the sinful nature. And this is what we are up against when we think about choosing friendship with God or friendship with the world. It seems like it should be such an obvious thing, right? If you just put it in front of us, do you want to be friends of God or friends with the world? But there's something in us predisposed to choose friendship with the world. And when we do, there are impacts. James says that, that the result of choosing friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, now, I want to be incredibly clear this morning. God is not your enemy. Ever. Ever. But James says that, that, that we live in a way that, that has us opposing God. That we live in a way when we are friends with the world where we oppose the will of God for justice and mercy and redemption and renewal. We live as enemies of God's purposes in the world. And this leads to conflicts and disputes. Warped by sin, our sinful cravings feel insatiable. So we have to have, no matter the cost. I remember years ago, uh, a friend who's about 20, 30 years older than me, uh, telling me about the time when, when her husband uh, uh, entered his early 40s. And all of a sudden, he started getting really angry. And it took him a while to figure out he's not an angry person, a pretty mild-mannered person. Why was he feeling so much anger? And, and eventually, he realized that he had always imagined that he would be at a different point in his career when he was in his early 40s. 
he had always assumed that, that, that he would have a different title, that he had been promoted more times, that, that he would have more influence and status in his work. And now, now, he had a good job and he was doing really good work, but he wasn't where he thought he would be. He had been so focused on what he thought was right for his life that he missed how that passion, that craving was actually eating him up on the inside and directing anger towards those he most loved. We should say as well that this is not just an individual problem, is it? We infect our society with those sinful cravings. I, I want to parenthetically say, because some of you will be aware of this, that there are Christians right now who, who, who would say that, that, that the impact of sin is limited just to the individual. That, that to talk about anything systemic or structural is to be unbiblical. And I think James here would disagree. <laughs> Because James is talking about conflicts and disputes which have worked their way into the structure of the church, the community. Who is it who builds our economies, our institutions, our societies, our systems and our structures? Is it not sinful people? The impact of our sinful cravings and passions get worked into the systems that we engage with every day. God made us for something very, very different. God made us for lives of meaning and purpose. God made us to experience love and joy. To give our very best so that our neighbors could thrive and flourish. God created a universe humming in harmony with itself. Each element and particle of creation deriving its very purpose from the Creator. That was God's intention. Is this what we see? Is this what we experience in our own lives and in the world in which we, that we inhabit? I don't, I don't think so. I think we see instead, for instance, a pandemic which disproportionately impacts the south and the west sides of our city. I think instead we see young people in our neighborhood who cannot walk out the front doors of their high school without fearing for their lives. I think we see at a time of incredible suffering billionaires who've gotten so incredibly wealthy that while the world suffers, they can joyride into space on their private rockets at their leisure. I think this is what we see. I would suggest that from every perspective, personal or societal, we see what friendship with this world brings. It's no wonder that James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. When we follow these personal desires and cultural priorities which have been infected with envy and violence and inequality, we are transgressing the very heart of God for his creation. So are we stuck? Is this our fate? Is this our lot? (laughs) To succumb again and again and again to friendship with this broken and groaning world? The answer is yes, if left to ourselves. Fact is, is that friendship with this world will always leave us captive and bound. Friendship with this world, left to ourselves... We will find that sin deadens our desires so that we accept as normal this world's chaos and exhaustion. 
This world's hierarchies and divisions. This world's dividing walls and lines of hostility. Left to ourselves, friends, we will rationalize our addictions, we will institutionalize our dysfunctions, and we will spiritualize our insatiable and selfish consumption. Which is why, which is why verse 6 is so incredibly important. Because in verse 6, James makes a turn and he says, But he gives all the more grace. And I hope that there's a few more of you, and not just Pastor Michelle today, who are going to talk back to me when you hear the good news of the gospel of grace. But God gives more grace. This world had us bound in sin, but God gives more grace. This world had us bent low under our own selfishness and pride, but God gives more grace. This world had some of us lying to ourselves about ourselves, but God gives more grace. This world had others of us caught and twisting in generational trauma, but God gives more grace. This world had us chasing food which could not satisfy and drink which left us parched. This world had us convinced that society's wicked and unjust status quo is just the way it would always be. But God gives more grace. How about you? I know for a fact that there are some of us here this morning who can remember when we were convinced that our marriage was over. How some of us believed that our child would not make it through that thing. How some of us can remember how our hearts sank at that diagnosis. But how you had to endure the scorn of that supervisor. There are some of us here today who can remember when you were sure that this would finally be the month when you would be evicted. I wonder, I wonder if there is anybody here this morning who can remember what it is like to live under the logic of this world's so-called friendship. Do you remember the burden? Do you remember the lie? Do you remember the exhaustion? And do you remember the moment that grace broke in? He gives us grace upon grace. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has unstopped for us wells of grace in this world's parched and desolate places. All the more grace. So can I say it again? We can choose friendship with God. 
We are not stuck. (laughs) We can choose friendship with God by the grace of God. Because Jesus took on to himself our sin and our rebellion. Because Jesus allowed this wicked world to crush him in our stead. Because Jesus resurrected in glory over sin, death, and the devil. You can choose friendship with God. We can turn our back on this world's lies. We can be healed of our selfish cravings. In other words, by the grace of God shown to us by his son, we can choose eternal friendship with God. And I know, I know, I know, some of you are like, we get it. You keep saying the same thing over and over again, pastor. We, we, we get it. Why, why are you lingering here? Let me tell you why I'm lingering here. Because it's entirely possible that there are, there are some folks among us today here or online who have yet to choose friendship with God. It's, it's entirely possible, it seems to me, that there are some of us who are so worn down and beat down by friendship with the world that we need to, for the first time, actually say yes to friendship with God. If that's you, I, I pray that you do, and I pray you find me or Pastor Michelle after the service. But there's another reason I want to linger here for just a minute. Pastor Michelle already knows why. Because you see, James was not writing to a group of people who hadn't heard about friendship with God. James was not writing to a group of people who wouldn't have said, Oh, I'm a friend of God. They might have even sung it every Sunday morning. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And then James says, How are you living? What if we took an audit of your life? Would the balance lean towards friendship with God or the world? You see, according to James, it's entirely possible to say, yes, I am a friend of God, and yet to continue living. It's like the Hebrew children in the wilderness. Getting tired and and looking back over their shoulders. Oh, the pyramids were pretty impressive. We knew where our food was coming. So some of us today, we need to be really honest with ourselves. Who have we made friends with? Friendship with the world will always be a dysfunctional relationship. So break up. (laughs) Break up with that dysfunctional relationship relationship but 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 we struggle to because we've gotten used to it we struggle to break up because we at least know what this feels like and what to expect i'm stressed and i'm anxious but at least i'm paying the bills i'm exhausted and i'm cynical but i got a vacation that's coming up at least I'm wound tight, I'm jittery, my cholesterol levels are all wrong, but at least they respect me. So can I remind us this morning that God is not interested to a cost-benefit analysis version of your life. When Jesus promised you the blessed and the abundant life, I can promise you today that he was not talking about your ability to pay for yet another streaming service on your device. 
He was not confining a life of abiding peace and security and joy to the weekends. And he most certainly was not measuring a life full of presence and the power of the Holy Spirit according to what somebody else thinks about you. You can choose friendship with God and by the grace of God. And can I testify today, and I hope some of you can as well, that to be called a friend of God is better by far than any of the small and petty things this world would offer. Remember what grace has made possible for you today. Stop cutting deals with a world that does not have your best interest in mind. Go all in in this friendship with the God who has given everything that you could call him friend. Let me turn now more more quickly to how James helps us to picture choosing this friendship with God. It's one thing to say we should. What, What does that look like? The last section of this passage begins in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And it ends in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Do you see the theme? Submit. Humble. Friendship with God begins simply by acknowledging that you are not God. Begins... By walking away from the lie the world has told us that we can live as though we are God. And choosing instead this way of humble submission before the creator of all things. Now now, let me lump sort of three practical implications of this that I find in these verses. Three ways that we can choose friendship with God. The first is to resist the devil. Can you say that? James says, and he will flee from you. Not to put too fine a point on it, but according to James, friendship with the world is friendship with the devil. There's no amens to that one, Amy. There is behind the conflicts and the disputes, the the acts of violence, there is behind all of this a spiritual force of evil bent on destruction and destroying you in particular. Now, sometimes this is very obvious, isn't it? Sometimes we go, oh, I know. (laughs) Oh, devil, I see you. And we know in that moment what to do. We we turn in prayer. We we reach out for help. But but I think most of the time, resisting the devil is more complicated. It's, It's more like not conforming to the patterns of this world, as the Apostle Paul says. It's the wallpaper of our lives. The stuff that just blends into the background. This is just how it is. It's the pattern. It's the status quo of this world. We need to be aware and alert to the ways that we resist those elements of the enemy's attack. We speak scripture, the truth of scripture in that moment. We reach out for sisters and brothers who will pray for us and and walk with us. We reach immediately out to the presence of God. And what does James say? Resist the devil and what? You see, sometimes we get it backwards. We think that we need to flee the devil. 
Uh, imagine for a moment that you've been looking for a, a new home and, and it's taken a while and you finally find a new home and you're happy with it. It's good for you. And, and then you're unpacking the kitchen and you find that there's some ants in the kitchen. Would you flee those ants <laughs> or would you resist them <laughs> with a can of, uh, of off? <laughs> would you resist those ants expecting that they're going to flee from you <laughs> because this is the home that God gave you. <laughs> some of us flee the devil but the devil has already been defeated. And so all we have to do is to resist the devil and he will flee from you. To resist the spiritual forces of evil because Jesus has already spoken the final word of condemnation over anything opposed to the will of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Second, James says that we are to draw near to God. Say, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. By grace, we can come close to God. I know some of you are so used to that idea that, 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 that the impossibility of it sort of slips our minds. This is the transcendent God, the holy God, the, the invisible God. This is the one from whom all of creation derives its identity. And yet because the Son of God took on our flesh and made his home among us, we can draw near to God. Don't take it for granted, friends. That you can open your hearts and your minds to your God. Don't take it for granted that you can actually listen for the voice of God in your life. Don't, don't, don't take it for granted that over the course of your life, you can actually learn to follow Jesus closer and closer and closer. We can know the joy of our salvation. We can know the peace that passes all understanding. We can experience the courage, as the old hymn says, in the face of many dangers, toils, and snares. And, and hear this too. When we draw near to God, we draw near to God together. Uh, we are uh, predisposed to think very individualistically at, at, about this sort of thing. And, and I worry that, that the way that we have experienced a kind of scatteredness during this pandemic and, and online, and I'm so glad you're online with us, but, but, but we, we, we have in some ways been re-entrenched in this idea that as long as it's me and Jesus, I'm okay. Friends, there is no drawing near to God without drawing near to the people of God. <laughs> If you want to draw near to God, you have to be willing to draw near to the people of God. To experience the presence and the fellowship of God with sisters and brothers in Christ will help you see what you would have otherwise missed. And then finally, we resist the devil, we draw near to God, and then finally we live truthfully. Can you say live truthfully? I'm kind of paraphrasing verses 8 and 9 here where, where James says that we need to cleanse ourselves, purify ourselves, lament, mourn, and weep. It's an image of repentance, embodied repentance. It's an image of turning away from the lies of the world. Making friends with God means telling the truth. Now, it means telling the truth about ourselves, which involves confession. We talked about this in Bible study this past week. When we sin, when we sin against somebody in our community, we confess, we tell the truth about that. We don't lie, we don't pretend it's otherwise. But it also involves telling the truth about our world. It is amazing, isn't it? The ability of some of our pundits to obfuscate 
the causes of our pain and trauma and divisions. You hear people talk, Ken, about all of the data and and all of the the sociological analysis about why it is that that some of our kids are doing better than others of our kids and why, why, why some of our families have access to more resources than others of our families. And nobody would think to come right out and say, you know, there's such a thing as as racism that is still alive and well. There's such a thing as white supremacy that still has its tentacles wrapped into our imaginations and our systems. But the people of God will always tell the truth. We will speak clearly and precisely, not just about our own sin, but the way that that gets worked into our world and into our, our society as well. Choosing friendship with God means telling the truth. It means not making peace with forces bent on your destruction. It's a false peace. Jesus, my friends, makes the impossible possible. Though you and I are predisposed to this world's conflicts and disputes, though we know what it is like to live under a regime of sin, though it can seem as though evil and wickedness are winning the day in our streets, we can still choose friendship with God. We can still choose humble submission before our God. So those are three very practical things. Resisting the devil, drawing near to God, Living truthfully. My hunch is that for every one of us, there's one of those we could hang on to this week. That there's some place in your life where you're being called to resist the spiritual forces of evil that have just kind of blended into the background of your life. And for others of us, there's a, there's a call, there's an invitation to draw near to God and to the people of God. And for others of us, there are places where we, we have called the lie the truth. <laughs> And we are being called to live truthfully this week. We can choose friendship with God by the grace of God. I'm almost done. I'm almost done, Michael Washington. (coughs) Our, Our passage, our passage began with strife and dissension. The inevitable results of our sin. This world tells us we need to hype ourselves. The the prince of this world whispers the same lie to you and to me as he did to Jesus in that Judean wilderness. I will give you all the authority and splendor if you worship me. It will all be yours. Imagine for a moment a society that actually believed that lie. People desperately wanting and coveting glory for ourselves, authority to accomplish our own self-centered desires. We don't have to imagine it, do we? We see the bitter fruit of worldly friendship in those powerful people who cannot bring themselves to tell the truth. In school systems which will not prioritize our children. In development projects which squeeze long-time residents from their homes. We could go on. But we must also be honest because we too have ingested of this deceptive fruit. We too have agreed to play by the rules of a world in rebellion to its creator. We too have shrugged our shoulders and shaken our heads. It's just too bad. This is the way the world works. 
And so the violence which rips through our streets does the same through our own hearts. But friends, that's how the passage began. It ends rather differently, doesn't it? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We should be very clear that this world promises your exaltation, but can only deliver your humiliation. But there is a far better way. Humble yourself before God, before the creator of all things, before the one who is himself the beginning and the end, the one who parts seas and stops the sun and quiets the storm with a word. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Come in humility before the Lord who calls you friend. Come to worship the one who moved heaven and earth to save you. Come with praise and thanksgiving on your lips for the Savior who snatched you from the grip of sin. And he will raise you up. You remember that thing our former first lady said, Minister Marquita? She said, when they go low, we go high. Uh, Friends, in that vein, Jesus Christ made himself low so that we might be lifted high. He took on your flesh and allowed the conflicts and disputes and violence of our own making to crush his body that we might live. He gave himself over to this world's oppressive powers as they rained down humiliation upon humiliation. He allowed himself to be hoisted from that cursed tree, degraded and disgraced, mocked and mortified. Why? So that we might be set free. And I'm going to take a couple of more minutes here to remind you about what came next. I'm going to remind you that after they laid him in the tomb and and, and closed it with an immovable stone, after this world's smartest minds and most powerful militaries had wiped their hands of that troublesome teacher from Galilee, after, after everybody who was anybody had returned to the corrupt and violent status quo, after they had purged from their memories those paradigm-shifting teachings about a kingdom of justice and love that had come to liberate this captive world, after many long, long hours had passed, the Son of God got up. <laughs> And he didn't just get up. He didn't just get up and dust the death off of his body. He didn't just walk back into Jerusalem and said, I told you so. I hope I'm preaching to a couple people. No, according to the apostle Paul, when Jesus stepped out of that tomb early on that Sunday morning, God exalted him to the highest place. God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. God exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus got up, the Father exalted him to the highest place. I hope you can hear the gospel again, friends.
Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. The son of God who rose in victory over the worst this world could heap upon his sinless body. He will exalt you. Son of God who rose in glory and sits now at the right hand of God, the father almighty. He will exalt you. The preeminent, the incomparable, the glorious son of God. The one who defeated evil so that you can resist the devil. The one who came near to you so that you can come near to God. The one who is truth itself so that you could live truthfully. He got up and exalted you. The one who knows you better than you know yourself and still calls you friend, exalts you. Bend your knee to Jesus today. Bend your knee only to Jesus today. Wherever you've bent the knee to this world's lies, get up, stand up. And humble yourself before God and God alone. And he will exalt you. Spirit of the living God. Confirm for us now whatever you have said to us. However you are calling us to live in more freedom as your friends. Show us the places where we have made a false peace with the world which desires our demise. Show us the way to choosing friendship with you. And we say thank you, Jesus, for your grace, which has made the impossible possible. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.